Hi there, welcome to Mind Talks, an organization that examines the psychology into upcoming and elite athletes. My name is Nathan and I'm with my co-host Ed. Edwin, how are you, sir? I'm not too bad. How are you doing? Not too bad indeed. Uh can't complain. But I did not do my workout today. So <laughs> I need to make sure that I'm back on it tomorrow. What about yourself? How's the last week been for you? It's been alright, you know. Um it's been alright. I didn't I haven't done my workout today either. Um but I've got a plan set about so tomorrow I'm supposed to do a Zoom workout with one of my friends. So trying to keep active in this period, but it's not easy, it's not easy. That's it, perfect, perfect. Well, today we are, uh, we've got a special guest today. And this, this, this special guest really, you know, represents the vision of Mind Talks. And before the inception of Mind Talks, both Edwin and I, we both really wanted to add value to the industry. And we didn't want this to be just a podcast of opinion. We wanted to actually really and get involved experts in the actual field. And we've got an expert today. So this individual is a sport and exercise psychologist. They are the director of Mindology. And Mindology offers a variety of services to athletes, parents, and coaches. This individual also studied at Kent and Brunel University, respectively and in terms of sports, was an active participant in rugby. So, without any further ado, Alexandria Olton, I hope I said your name right. That's right, um, you've perfectly <laughs> named that. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. Okay, so first and foremost, we, we have to start with the lockdown, the pandemic. Um, how has it been for you? Tell the audience where you are in the world. And yeah, what are you doing or what you have been doing during this lockdown? Yeah, absolutely. I think I should probably have a script by now recorded in my mind as to how I'm doing because this question has come up. This is a hot topic of yeah. what is happening in COVID. Um, so I'm based in Trinidad and Tobago, which is a island in the Caribbean. So much different to the weather that you're currently experiencing in England. Um, <laughs> so it's sunny outside. Um, you know, I've had to... Um, really the biggest thing for me during this entire kind of global pandemic is trying to reshape um, how sports psychology takes place. Because, of course, you go from, you know, uh, working with athletes in the outdoors alongside them and during training or when they're at the gym to everything coming to a complete halt. Um, and now more than ever, you know, people need that mental health support, um, especially athletes who are, you know, then told they can't compete and going from very active lifestyles to very sedentary lifestyles and how do they cope with this? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, trans- uh, the transition, I should say, onto online platforms for therapy is certainly been probably the thing that's kept me most occupied during this pandemic. Um, yeah. You know, Trinidad, we're fortunate that we have, um, you know, low numbers in cases right now, um, comparable to the UK, of course, uh, whose numbers are quite high. And of course, you're in a complete lockdown. Yeah. Uh, so we still have some free movement, but we were in complete lockdown uh, very early last year from March until about June. And then again, the latter half of the year. So I completely empathize with what you guys are experiencing at the moment. So. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, so um, talk to us about your introduction to sport. So what age, um, how, how did you get introduced? Um, I think it was, you know, something that was always natural for me because I had very athletic parents. Um, my mum wasn't so much the sporty type, but very active with her fitness and going to the gym. And my dad was an avid rugby player, cricketer, um, you know, hockey player, any sport he could get his hands on, he was involved, um, you know, and he threw himself in wholeheartedly. Um, I used to tease him and tell him it's all the gear and no idea, but that's all right, it's okay. Um, hopefully he's not listening to this. <laughs> and, um, you know, of course, then all those around me, I grew up, because I'm an only child, but I grew up with a lot of cousins around and so on, and a lot of them are boys. I'm one of the um, few females on both sides of the family, uh, sort of, in my generation. So, you know, it's very much, um, you know, get out, get active, and, and do something. And I enjoyed it and excelled at it, um, you know, or, or, you know, started progress in my own sporting life, and just picked it up and followed in, you know, the footsteps of my dad and picking up rugby as my sport of choice. Um, much against my mother's wishes, but you know, her little girl wasn't going to be the ballerina she'd hoped for. So, okay, talk to us about that transition. So, you know, joining your first team, what was the the, the mindset when you're going into you? You really trying to get yourself, um, in not just into a team, but just ensuring that you know you, you excel, um, ensuring that you know yourself and your teammates get along. Talk to us about that transition. I think, um, you know, team dynamic is very interesting because, of course, you have to want to be sociable to engage in a team setting um, because a lot of people will shy away from team settings solely because they don't want to interact with others. And then on top of that, you're trying to better your own performance, but, of course, then progress as a squad and continue to sustain that chemistry so that the group as a, as a whole uh, works together to also achieve success. Um, you know, rugby is a very physical sport and um, one that I think takes a certain type of personality to, to engage in because you, you don't find the faint-hearted kind of, oh, I just wondered what it was like and then kind of just try it, you know. Um, uh, especially at university, we saw some, um, you know, a wide range of, you know, individuals coming to try the sport out, you know, of course, and you have society's fairs or whatever and everybody's you know, signing up and whatnot, you, you really see those who were committed to actually trying it. They came to the table, signed up because they knew what they were getting into. And, you know, that, that team dynamic is really interesting um, and can certainly pose challenges when you're trying to progress as an individual and competing for, to play in a position that maybe has two or three others also competing for the same position. So it's a, a fine balance of, of working as a unit while, you know, sustaining healthy competition amongst yourselves. So. Interesting. So one of the things that Mike Tyson always used to say is everyone wants to be a boxer until they get punched in the face. So yeah. what what was your first tackle like when you first got that first heavy tackle? How did that feel like? Did you ever want did, did you just did you just say to yourself, No, I can't do this, let me choose another sport or did that just spur you on? I think uh, I think it was a bit, um, you know, sick with it in the sense that I enjoyed it and wanted to carry on. <laughs> so, you know, the harder they hit it, the stronger I want to get to hit them back, you know. And then that's yeah. why I also did Krav Maga when I was about 17, 18, took my level two exam and so on and progressed in that as well, which is, of course, Israeli street fighting. <laughs> I used yeah. to come home with sort of black and blues all around my face and neck and swollen limbs. Wow. I mean, it's <laughs> 
combat sports has been my sort of adrenaline rush for a long time. And yeah, um, yeah it, it can certainly be a deterrent for many. I mean, it's not for everyone. And there are so many sports available that, you know, it's a beautiful field that certainly anybody can try something, really enjoy it, and, and it brings a community of people together. It, that, that's why I got into the, the field of sports. It brings, you know, countrymen, nationals, um, you know, if you're cheering on someone at the Olympics or you're cheering on a team in the, you know, the Premier League, you know, I know how very divisive Premier League can get with, you know, so one sporting Tottenham, one sporting Arsenal, one's in Man City, whatever, you know, so um, I shan't declare what team I support because, of course, I don't want to be too divisive. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it can, that's the beauty of sports. Some, some want to go into one and, and there's always an, an option for everyone else, you know, so. So, so when you were playing, what was your strength? I think I was fairly strong physically, um, you know, so there came a lot of power with my legs and so my leg drive was quite good. So, you know, I could produce a good tackle and so on. But I, I like to think that I was quite a good decision maker on the pitch as well. So um, it was a combination of, uh, because I played number seven, which is, um, you know, of course, flank off the side of the scrum. Um, but I progressed from that because I started um, university quite, um, small, I should say, <laughs> and then the precious 15 pushed me up to number seven. So I was a winger at first, um, but also standing out in the wing, you know, you have to make the right call at the right time or know when to cut in um, well enough you know, not to create that gap in the defence. And so, so it's, uh, you know, rugby is a, a decision-making game um, uh, for the most part, uh, except for sort of the, the, the forwards who <laughs> don't seem to make much decisions. They're just the heavy hitters. But, uh, yeah, that's. I think those are my two strengths: my physical strength, um, because I'm quite tall, and so it, you know, I, I had a lot of physical strength, and um, my ability to make decisions on the pitch. Okay. Um, were there any areas that your coaches identified as key areas of development? Um, can't say um, uh, more than sort of just during any one game, uh, you know, if you weren't getting low enough for, for whatever reason. I mean, uh, later on into my rugby career and playing career, um, yeah. I started struggling with back issues. So um, that was certainly a, a challenge for me to kind of uh, learn how to compensate uh, injury and still play well. And then I had to ultimately come to the decision that I couldn't continue playing on, um, which is why I went into then rugby coaching. Um, but yeah, so it would be sort of any in any one game something that I might need to improve on or whatever. But generally, yeah. as a player, I mean, university teams are fairly developmental um, in the sense that we, you know, it's the Bucks League kind of thing. But I did play uh, the Premiership level of the Bucks with um, University of Birmingham, and uh, yeah. that was quite fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the uh, uh, what you call it, uh, yeah, Edinburgh University team was pretty much all Scottish national female players. So <laughs> that was a bit of a tough game. <laughs> and we played on their home ground, so it was a little bit challenging. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I got to see Edinburgh, which was great, walk around the castle or whatever else. So yeah. <laughs> at least they have pictures of that. So. Um, so we'll just move on to mindology. So just actually just before that, what made you choose psychology? 
Um, actually, wanted to be a photographer. And when I posed the idea to my mom, uh, she said, "Oh, why don't you talk to your dad about that?" And I talked to my dad. He's like, "Oh, why don't we sort of broaden it a little bit? Maybe you know, look into other fields." So, yeah. um, I, you know, I was pursuing the sciences in the sort of secondary school, and uh, I just said, "Oh, you know, something I really enjoyed was actually sociology as a as an E-level subject." Um, when I saw uh, that Kent offered a sort of a joint honours uh, sociology and psychology, and I thought that would be quite an interesting, you know, field to kind of pursue. And then, of course, uh, once I got to the master's level, I thought, how could I marry my degree and, um, you know, the sport that I have the most passion for, or, or the field that I have the most passion for, which is, of course, sport. And then I came upon the, uh, the degree at, at Brunel, and I thought, you know, this is this is really the place that I'd like to, to kind of go forward in my career path. And yeah, I can't say I've regretted it since. <laughs> and in terms of, you know, psychologists, is there any psychologist that you looked up to? Um, I can't say that it was um, particularly a field that I had dabbled in before, you know, starting my degree. Um, yeah. Thereafter, I then began to, you know, pick up reading and so on, and I found a passion in um, emotional intelligence, which is, of course, a, a field that is often used in sort of business and, yeah. um, you know, uh, big organizations that are looking for key performance from their employees and so on, but can also translate, you know, very um, impactfully into the field of sport and um, certainly an under-researched uh, area that, that is very interesting. Mm. Okay. And um, what would you say the process for a new client? So someone who decides, okay, I want to use a psychologist. Um, how does the process work? Um, you know, it can be fairly simple, really. Um, I think that the hardest part is getting people to understand what sports psychologists actually do, um, or that we actually exist to some extent sometimes, because uh, we are quite a an underpopulated field here in the Caribbean, for sure. I mean, there are only about, you know, maybe maximum eight or ten of us in the entire of Trinidad and Tobago, which is, wow. you know, you know. So we're wow. a very niche, yeah, we're a very niche field. So a big part of of what we do is is education as well. So um, then I write for one of the national newspapers um, on a sports psychology column. So, you know, it's, I try to use that medium of, of national media to educate the population on, on what we do and how we can help. Once someone has the understanding of, you know, what our scope of works is, it's fairly simple. They just sort of reach out, um, you know, by a telephone or send an email and, and ask for the services and then it becomes a, a very simple process. We can do one-to-one -one sessions if it's an individual or you can have team workshops if it's a group of athletes. Um, I've done them both in person and, and over, you know, Zoom or Skype or whatever it might be. Um, and uh, yeah, we have a, I have a formal procedure that I sort of follow and as do some of the other sports psychologists that I work alongside here in Trinidad. We have our paperwork, of course, that we have to fill in. Um, so you sign your consent form, understanding that everything remains confidential. And, um, yeah, we do sort of the, the first meeting is what we call the initial intake, yeah. um, which is like developing a character or personality profile of the athlete that is in front of us, really. So getting a sporting history, a medical history, sort of your daily habits, you know, um, eating patterns, that sort of stuff. Um, but we try to make it conversational so that it doesn't come across like you're just being interviewed. 
um, as you know, settings can be fairly clinical sometimes. Yeah. And then thereafter, there's sort of every every individual athlete or every team is sort of you know unique and requires custom workshops designed for their specific needs. So yeah. from that intake, we'll we'll identify the needs um, of the athlete or athlete, and and then we go from there. Um, and that's pretty much the process, really. Okay. So um, outside education, um, what other barriers are there, um, you know, upon, you know, meeting your clients? Um, <clears throat> I think a large one for, for me, at least, um, it, it is to, it's certainly a challenge being a female in an all uh, predominantly male um, field. Okay. Um, and sometimes um coaches or parents can certainly act as um barriers sometimes to the true success of of my work with an athlete and yeah. um to no fault of their own sometimes just simply because a coach coaches one way and doesn't necessarily know how to integrate a sports psych into their um you know into their kind of uh, coaching yeah. operation um or it can be as well that, you know, sometimes there's a lack of communication between other stakeholders and myself, maybe like a physio or if they see a nutritionist or something like that. So I make a very active effort to kind of, um, if my athlete discloses certain things, make sure that I say, okay, well, either, you know, develop a good enough relationship that they are able to sort of reveal that information or, um, you know, ask them if they will be comfortable with me sort of communicating um, with their, you know, physio or whatever to see if how they're progressing and if I notice certain things especially around injury and so on yeah. um, as I've worked with athletes who uh, you know what we call catastrophized pain so they might not be experiencing the pain that they think they are but because of the, the severity of the injury they once experienced you know that fear has sort wow. of so understanding mm-hmm. then from yeah. a physio's point yeah. of view uh, okay, what is actually happening here? And then the physio says, well, actually, they're, they're not progressing or they're progressing quite well. Or, you know, the pain threshold seems to vary too much that it doesn't, you know. So that kind of understanding and and especially around eating behaviors as well, because, of course, athletes can also struggle very, very badly with, you know, eating disorders and so on, trying to cut weight or, you know, meet a certain time if they're in, you know, athletics or if they're in boxing or, you know, bodybuilders, whatever it might be that, you know, there's certain uh, key things you need to look out for um, behavior-wise to, mm. to make sure that your athlete is healthy. Um, but of course, then uh, I'm not a clinician, so once I identify those signs, I sort of raise my concerns with the athlete, and then if need be, refer them to a, a clinical psychologist who will then be able to diagnose and treat uh, whatever they might have. Yeah. So. so that's very interesting um, because I'm sure you heard. Had Nate's reaction earlier on, but um, when it comes to people that have had cross trauma um, injuries and how they how they come back from it and how they react, and some people have recovered, but obviously there's still that trauma that they received in the past is is basically hindering their progress. Yeah, absolutely, um, I mean that's one of the main areas of research that I did for my masters, um, and I worked together with the Professional Footballers Association, looking at sort of the elite footballers of the UK. So I took it, we, we did it as a sort of a collaborative group project. Uh, so one did it from the PFA perspective because, of course, they are able to provide counsellors to footballers when they really need it um, because, of course, they act as sort of a union for footballers. Um, 
and then uh, we did it from the coaches and club perspective, and then I did it from the players themselves. So I interviewed 100 um, elite footballers in the UK from all the various clubs in Premier League, Champions League, uh, League One and League Two, uh, yeah. both male and female. And, you know, the lack of psychological support that's provided for these, you know, really high level performing um, athletes was incredibly damaging to a lot of their careers, um, you know, cuts their careers prematurely. We have to understand that psychologists are required from the moment the injury takes place throughout that entire, in, entire injury process and, and including that return to play. Because, of course, that's where the biggest fear kicks in. Um, if I go back out and do exactly what I was doing when I got injured, will I get injured again? And, you know, that fear is real and, and very damaging. <laughs> so, yeah, if, if not, not taken care of and not worked through with, with a, the right professional, it can be, can be uh, you know, the, the make or break between someone's career. So, so um, is that paper readily available for the public? It is actually, um, yes, uh, it is. I can um, probably send you the link to it, but it's, uh, I think it's called the investigation into the psychological support for professional footballers in England. I think that's, if you generally search that, um, and the lead author is uh, Dr. Misha Jarvis, who is an absolute dream of a supervisor. And then, of course, um, Megan Bruce, um and... Uh, Helen would be on it as well. Uh, so, yeah, there'll be a couple authors on it, uh, but that's, um, that paper is out there and available. Fantastic. And in terms of the type of athletes that you work with, you've mentioned footballers, um, is there a difference in attitudes towards psychologists from sport to sport? Um, I would say, I guess, yes. Um, both on an individual and team level. Um, of course, there's a cultural difference between Trinidadian athletes or Caribbean athletes and English athletes as well. Um, so the way we go about developing a rapport with Caribbean athletes would be quite different to the way we would develop a rapport with English athletes or with European athletes on the whole kind of thing. And even then American athletes, because of course we're a very sort of friendly um, society or, or sort of culture. Um, so where it might be very black and white when it comes to dealing with, um, uh, sort of, a North American or European athlete. So this is, this is what we do. This is where we sometimes I find myself in situations where my Caribbean athletes might come to me and talk about things that are not necessarily sport related, but feeding into their sport. And then how do I go about managing those, uh, things and their expectations? without, you know, crossing my ethical boundaries as a practitioner. So um, it's certainly, yes, uh, and from sport to sport as well, the culture of one sport versus the culture of another and the sort of masculinity that comes with one sport versus another. And then the openness, of course, of female athletes versus male athletes and who are more emotional. And, you know, it, it's, it can be a very diverse, um, you know, field for sure. Um, I guess this question, you know, has been in my head for 10 minutes and I've been deliberating whether to ask you or not. And it's, it's probably not a fair question, but you, you mentioned earlier about it being, you know, this industry being quite underwhelming. Why do you think that is? Why, why, why in, from your perspective, why is this industry so under, un, underwhelmed at the moment? 
as in sports psychology. That's correct, yeah. Um, I think it comes back again to education. I don't think we truly realize um, the impact that the mind-body connection has on performance. Um, I think for a long time, mental health has carried this stigma and taboo, and you don't really talk about it. And while the wider field of mental health is certainly drumming up a conversation as well, um, it's taken a lot longer for you know sports uh, personalities and athletes to come out because, of course, with performance you cannot show weakness. Um, you know, to be successful, you cannot you know show your opponents where your faults lie or where you are. You know, you have your soft spots, and it's only after they have completed their successful careers and had their mental breakdowns that athletes then come out and say, actually, you know, I was really struggling, and now I'd like to talk about it, kind of thing. Um, but we have to kind of get rid of that and kind of uh, create this new conversation uh, around, you know, that mental health is one of the main feeders into uh, successful performances and consistent successful performances of that. Because you can have a one hit wonder career kind of thing, or yeah. you can you can genuinely be a fulfilled athlete with, you know, you know, positive well-being and success and, and not have to hit the mental lows to get there. Um, mm. And it's just about the industries as well. Yeah. Um, that 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 fund that uh, you know to, to allow the the space for a psychologist to be created because of course you know there's a lot of money involved in sport and where there's a lot of money there's a lot of politics and a lot of bureaucracy so yeah. um you know the road is not straight and narrow kind of thing but we we're certainly trying to get there so and with sports psychology would you say certain countries take it more seriously than others? Um. You would probably see more of it in certain countries than others, but I think that again comes with the funding thing. Um, you know, some countries have a lot more money to provide that, that creates that job opportunity for sports psychologists to work with teams. You know, the US feeds a lot of funding into their college sports. So you have collegiate teams with on-staff sports psychologists, wow. um, which is amazing. Um, and then, you know, in, in England, you have, uh, you know, wonderful uh, sort of sports governing bodies like Sport England and EIS and uh, you know the Olympic Committee and so on and they are trying to create those spaces as well but then you have these big um, you know leagues uh, such as the Football League which has enough funding to do it but just isn't taking it as seriously um, and it's it's only now it's sort of starting to to become and and you know Dr. Jarvis that I spoke of earlier is a huge advocate in this industry and as a strong and very dominant female, um, you know within the mental health and sports um, psychology field, uh, she has been pushing the the FA to, to really get it. And she has done an amazing program with uh, the Queens Park Rangers. And if we could mirror that across all the clubs, you know you would see some remarkable football really. So. Um, yeah, I think it's about funding. <laughs> I think that's interesting. I think that's what essentially I wanted to ask next. Next, it was almost to kind of put you on the spot, almost do this form of a role play where I would say to you, "Listen, I'm a football coach. These are eleven players. All they need to do is go out on the pitch and 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 you know fulfill their position. They don't need a sports psychologist. How do you persuade me? How do you persuade me?" I mean, this is <laughs> this is something that I've encountered quite a lot of, um, and it's because yeah, it's it's 
it's about creating the understanding that I'm not here to tell you how to be a coach and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to coach your football team. I do not have the technical know-how to do so, but in having the understanding of how your individual and team confidence improve could improve their decision making, how they speak for themselves uh, internally and uh, you know out loud on the pitch. How does that communication? You know, I did a wonderful little session on um, a couple of weeks ago with a hockey team um, where we developed uh, a team language. Everybody can use the same term because, uh, of course, everybody can reference something and mean the same move, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they call it the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if I kick the ball to you, you might call and you receive it, you might call that your first touch or somebody else might call it the first connection. Or somebody else might call it my first receive or yeah. whatever. You know, the difference in language then when you're trying to shout it across the field to, to your, your teammates, in understanding that everyone shares that same language, we then know what we mean rather than trying to decipher what are they saying and then make the decision. And Because we don't have that much time on the field, really. We have to make the decisions fairly quickly. Um, understanding that the more emotionally intelligent your athletes are and they're able to speak about their emotions and identify their emotions, the more readily they'll, you know, develop stress management skills, the more that they'll be able to work under pressure and make, you know, positive decisions. If they lose a game, if we have resilience developed and we've developed that sort of, you know, grit and resilience against adversity, then Mm -hmm. we're able to bounce back from a really poor performance. Sometimes we're in competition and you have performance tonight, a performance tomorrow night. You can't harp on about the loss the night before in the performance in front of you because then you're not in the present, you're not paying attention, and then you're going to make all the really bad calls. Even simple stuff such as relaxation techniques before they go out onto the pitch. Sometimes athletes play games in their head rather than watch the game that's going on in front of them and what they think the next move might be instead of what the actual next move is. And so their decision-making is delayed and there's a bit of a lag and, you know, as a result, they're not performing as well. So it's just about identifying all these areas and just having a conversation with the coach and being open. I have nothing to hide as a sports psychologist. Um, you know, I have no reason to have an alternative agenda. So mm. if I can identify all these areas to you and you still don't want to sort of <laughs> take it on, then that's your prerogative. I can't, you know, force the field onto someone. So, um, yeah, it's a matter of just creating a, a positive dialogue. So. Sometimes the female touch helps, <laughs> and sometimes the, the, the male-on-male encounter might not be as productive. <laughs> yeah. So is there a sport that stands out to you that doesn't pay enough attention to psychology? Um, <laughs> or, <laughs> uh, realistically, I think, you know, the, the development of the field needs to take place in all sports. Um, I think we're seeing that surge of psychologists sort of coming in and taking their space and 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 creating their role. Um, but I think we started with the individual sort of sports or the sports that require that sort of individual concentration. So you'd find cricket actually works with a, a lot of sports psychology um, because, of course, it can be very uh, much a mind game when you're out there on a test match for five days and you have to bat two innings and you just have to kind of figure out, okay, how do I go against the weather? What's the bounce of the pitch like? So these are physical factors that play their their role in, in you know, chasing scores and so on and, and how to 
you know, elongate that performance and survive the, the physical dream. So the sports like cricket, uh, golf, you'd find a lot of, um, you know, sports psychologists in as well. Uh, I think now we're seeing sort of sports psychologists working in and amongst the NFL, which is, of course, one of the biggest yeah. funded sports in the world. Um, then we have, yeah, then we have the NBA also. We've seen some basketball stars in their time. Uh, say that they work with mental coaches or sports psychologists, um, you know, the likes of, of Kobe Bryant, uh, Michael Jordan, um, LeBron James. They've all said, that, you know, this is a no practice mindfulness, so relaxation and, and so, sort of that kind of stuff. Um, but the bigger sports, the team sports, the rugby, the football, uh, sort of they need to, 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 to jump on board as well um, and, and get in the game. And I think, uh, you know, uh, a coach like uh, Eddie Jones, uh, who coaches England rugby, he certainly has demonstrated his willingness to sort of diversify the way that those guys train, you know. And, and yeah. even New Zealand rugby, I mean, they're an admirable uh, sports. That is the epitome of what creating a sport culture means for performance. You yeah. know, the, the Kiwis live and breathe rugby. It is their way out and their way of life uh, from kids that you know up right up to professional sport and they are masters of the basics uh, they don't have the fancy tricks and trails it looks like it but it's because they have mastered the basic pass the basic spin pass you know the basic running lines that kind of stuff they are they are an exemplar sort of high performance team um not to say that they are my favorite as well, but, <laughs> <laughs> but then you have the likes of Eddie Jones who uses martial arts and yoga and Pilates in his training routines for the guys uh, over at, at England Rugby as well. So, of course, then you have those kinds of diversification. So, of course, then now we need to bring on the mental aspect as well. So, <laughs> so I've got a, a, a personal question. Edwin will probably laugh at this. So, um, we unfortunately support Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> and <laughs> one of the the things that we have seen over the years is um there's, there's there seems to be a, a culture and yeah. um for for quite a few of the teams that have been broken up and come back together um there there does seem to be a little bit of a disharmony mm-hmm. so i guess for, uh, my question to you would be have you been given um a client where it was team-based and there was a lack of unity in the team and if you did have a client like that and um, talk to us about how you, you try to work with getting some form of cohesion and unity within that team yeah i mean uh, of course uh, team cohesion is something that doesn't come naturally um, it comes from being around the same people for quite some time practicing together um you know deliberately understanding how your teammates move and play and run. Um, and indeed, actually, I experienced it firsthand, um, you know, not even a client, but uh, there was some sort of um, factioning off uh, throughout one of my rugby teams. Um, and it was quite difficult because then it was a sort of, uh, there was this tension that always existed within the training and practices and so on. And you cannot succeed if there is a sort of disunity amongst teammates, um, no matter the sport, because you have to at some point try and work together. Um, and how you overcome that is just communication. Um, team cohesion comes from being open and honest. You are not going to like everyone on every team that you ever play on. You're not going to like every 
you know, you can translate it even into the workspace or the university settings. You're not going to like everyone in your class. You're not going to like everyone in the office that you, you know, but you have to learn what's important and put what's what's priority in front. And if you can at least get everyone to agree on that um, and, and create your team values around that, which is, you know, we have to perform well together or you put your personal things aside, um, then you can be able to build on your team performance and your team cohesion. You know, uh, simple team builders, um, anonymous sort of drop boxes with questions or comments, that kind of stuff, and have a, a safe and, and healthy mediation take place. Sometimes that can help. Um, my most recent experiences with it is that two players were not getting, getting along. Uh, they're competing for the same position to make a national team. Um, but during practice games, they have to work together. Uh, so developing that communication between them and having that understanding that, yes, we're competing for the same position, but at this moment in time, we have to work together. Um, then creating that little dynamic, just sitting down and having a conversation is one of the key elements to, to, to beginning that, that process of team cohesion. Perfect. Thank you. Um, I guess, yeah, let me change it around a bit. Who are, or who were, who were and are your sporting heroes? Oh, I have <laughs> quite a few. I think the first ever real sporting hero that I had, um, and I think was of course influenced uh, by my dad, who was an av- who is an avid cricket fan, uh, was Brian Lara. Um, you know, watching him play and bat is. Yeah. Uh, something simply magnificent, really. Um, and I'll never forget the day he scored his 400 not out um, against the Test Series uh, against England in 2004. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it was uh, just a piece of mastery, really. And, you know, the, the funny thing is if you're teaching people how to bat, you wouldn't teach them how to bat like Lara because he doesn't bat the textbook way, but it works for him and he makes the best decisions on on the way he moves. Um, and, and I always admire athletes like that, that they don't necessarily follow the textbook, you know, technical form of the, the, the skill that they're executing, but still somehow manage. Look at Chris Gale, he's, he's giant. I mean, <laughs> that probably weighs as much as I do. But, you know, he absolutely smashes it into the air yeah. and, you know, creates such an amazing T20 performance every time he steps out onto the, onto the field. Um, you know, then you, you look at the likes of Johnny Wilkinson, um, who was an amazing kicker. Yeah. Um, then you look at uh, sort of uh, Richie McCall um, and uh, just these real greats. And I guess a lot of my icons have been male uh, in that sense, because that's, you know, that what's right in front of you. Unfortunately, female sports is not necessarily as highly televised. Um, but I also really admire, like, Jessica Ennis-Hill. I think she's a fantastic example of um, and then a, an American athletic um, personality. Her name is Alicia Montano. Uh, sort of the great identifiers of balancing motherhood, female, you know, feminism kind of thing, and, and also high performance in sport. Um, and they were in athletics, um, you know, following, uh, you know, sport locally. There were a few... Um, icons that popped out uh, over time. You have, you know, the, the likes of Atul Bolden, who, who of oh, course, is you, <laughs> who, who is, our, you know, my um, first memory of Olympic success um, growing up. And then, you know, we had George Bovell, who was a swimmer, um, who won uh, his Olympic medal as well. 
and now we, I, I'm surrounded by incredibly talented athletes locally that, that, you know, even if they're younger than me, I still sort of admire them. I admire their dedication because, as you said, everybody wants to be a boxer until they get punched in the face. Everybody <laughs> wants to be an elite athlete until they realize what it takes, the dedication, the commitment, the two-a-day training sessions, the amount of food you have to consume, how you know, diligent you have to be with your mobility, your flexibility, your stretching, cool down, your warm up, your uh, everything. It's 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 a job. <laughs> it's a full time job. So yeah. Last thing. Um, so we know that during lockdown there have been you know plenty of cases where people have been suffering from um, mental health. So if there are any listeners out there um, just looking for um, any free tips. Um, what tips would you have on offer for them? Um, I think it's not going to be anything out of the ordinary or that we haven't come across before. Um, but I think some of the main things, uh, certainly creating a routine for yourself, um, especially when confined to a certain space or area for any prolonged period of time, you then have to develop a timetable of what am I going to do in this space, you know, sitting Sitting, watching TV all day is not going to, you know, be a benefit for your mental health. You know, is it that at uh, 10 a.m. I, I start my breakfast at night or 9 a.m. I wake up, um, I do a little morning yoga, I have breakfast, uh, then I have lunch or prepare lunch. Then, you know, routine, uh, timetabling, the basic stuff, even something as simple as, okay, now it's time to cook or whatever. It can really help because then it creates a, a sense of, oh, I'm looking forward to something. Yeah. Um, and giving you a sense of purpose, which is what we're lacking because we're stuck inside, right? So, um, and if you're allowed to go outside, whether it's for exercise or even if you're making like a pharmacy trip or a trip to the, the supermarket, make it purposeful and, and kind of embrace being outside for that time period that you, yeah. you're, you're out, you know, even if it's blistering cold outside, it can be miserable sometimes, but that outside space is really important. Um, you know, try something different, color, paint, um, cook lots of different things, cook lots of colourful things. Um, yeah. As well, be careful of the food that you're consuming because, of course, the, the food we fuel our bodies with uh, impacts greatly our mood, um, and we can have a lot of crashes, especially for consuming a lot of high sugar, high fat foods. Um, you know, 90% of our serotonin or happy hormone receptors is in our gut. So if you have an unhappy gut, you're going to feel unhappy. You're going to feel unhealthy. So you know, the likes of, of the fast food and so on. Yeah, it gives you the thrill while you're eating it. And then within half an hour, you'll feel absolutely terrible. And that's because you're having the sugar crash. Um, stay away from energy drinks, uh, high caffeine, especially if you're feeling anxious. Just stay away from the caffeinated drinks and so on. Try some tea, chamomile or lavender to kind of calm the nerves a bit. Um, and realistically, just keep in touch with people. Um, surround yourself with the familiar network. Even if via, you know, text message or whatever, understanding that we're sharing this this together and this sense of community that we can have and this togetherness can make you feel a little bit less burdened by it all. Um, And make sure to take breaks from the media and stuff like that. That that stuff can be very overwhelming if you're filling your entire day with consumption of social media or news or reading the papers. And don't read the Daily Mail. Just <laughs> 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 I second that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, um, Alexandra, um, it was very, very, very insightful, and thank you so, so, so much. We definitely, definitely have to get you back on. One of the things that I definitely want to tackle is is food. Um, one of the last um, things that you mentioned about, you know, the gut, that is something that I have been looking into for a long time. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I understand, you know, you know, there's a part of science that says, you know, your gut is your second brain. So I really, really want to get into, you know, in-depth science about the gut. So it would be really, really good to, to hear, hear your thoughts and your expertise on it. Um, please tell us about uh, Mindology. Um, you can plug away your business. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the, the, the cheeky plug. Um, <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, you can find me on Instagram at Mindology TT. That's M-I-N-D-O-L-O-G-Y-T-T. Um, while I'm based in Trinidad and Tobago, uh, you know, online therapeutic um, sort of interventions are available, uh, even if people want to reach out from, from the UK. Um, you can email me or just visit the website, www.mindologytt.com. Um, I'm happy to just chat if you have a question about sports psychology, even if you're not seeking therapeutic interventions of any kind, if you just want to reach out and say, hey, I listen to the podcast, you know. That's great too. I welcome any and all forms of conversation around uh, mental health, mental wellness, and, and sports psychology. And um, if you're really interested in sports psychology, I post up uh, fortnightly my articles uh, that I write for the Trinidad and Tobago Newsday. Um, so if you want to continue reading about sports psychology in a fairly you know, user-friendly way um, for the general public, then check out Mindology's page where I'll always post the links to the um, the article. Okay. Thank you very much, Alexandra. Um, guys, this was a really the, the epitome of why we started Mindtalks. As I said at the start, um, we really want to add value to this industry and we really, really hope that you've taken something from this very impactful episode. So until next time, guys, thank you very much. Thanks so much, guys.